0: The Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser is produced by the Pulte Institute for Global Development, an integral part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Pulte Institute works to address global poverty and inequality through policy, practice, and partnership, and is a catalyst for centers and faculty at Notre Dame to develop interdisciplinary research programs that address today's most pressing global development challenges. Learn more at pulte.nd.edu.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and today's episode is a recording of my conversation with Ian Gary, the director of Power and Money at Oxfam America. This podcast is made as a live webinar hosted in partnership with the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. We were joined today by ethicists and activists from all over the world to discuss how activism has promoted normative change within extractive industries. I hope you enjoy the discussion. For centuries, extractive industries have operated in countries across the world with impunity. Often guilty of egregious violations of human rights, environmental laws and standards, and wholesale looting of national wealth. National governments and their leaders have often been complicit in such behaviors in pursuit of national revenue or personal gain. Very often, poor, marginalized, and especially indigenous populations have been victims of these practices with little hope of legal redress in national courts or proportionate financial compensation for expropriated assets and lost livelihoods. Leading spokespersons have often lost their lives when speaking out against such practices. Much of this kind of behavior has been possible because extractive operations are often located in remote territories far from any oversight by the media or public authorities. Today, however, with the rise of the internet, companies can no longer hide. Campaigns like Blood Diamonds or No Dirty Gold have exposed such practices to the public and led to changes in public sentiment and buying practices that can affect company bottom lines. Investors are now evaluating companies against new and stronger environmental, social, and governance standards. Communities are calling for free, prior, and informed consent before new projects can be initiated. Companies today face a whole new world of public scrutiny and accountability. Our discussion today will focus on what this emergent, new, normative reality may mean for companies and communities. Our guest today is Ian Gary, the director of the Power and Money Program at Oxfam America. The program works on all aspects of extractive industries, from community engagement to tax liability. Ian and his Oxfam colleagues were key players in securing the passage of Section 1504 to the Wall Street Reform Act of 2010 that would force companies to make transparent all their financial payments to countries where they had major projects. Ian, delighted that you could join us today for this conversation. Thank you, Ray. Let's begin by talking a bit about the Power & Money program at Oxfam and maybe a very simple question, why power and money? And how does this describe Oxfam's approach to its work on extractive industries today?
2: Well, I think if you take it at the very top level, Oxfam is focused on fighting the root causes of poverty, fighting the injustice of poverty. So the fact that people are poor is not because of a lack of stuff as it were, but it's a lack of power. And being able to empower communities to address this power imbalance and the injustices that communities face is key to Oxfam's approach. So the power and money program is looking at the vast resources that come from extractive industries, come from aid programs, come from a government's own tax collection and tries to channel those flows towards development outcomes. And this relates both to public resources, but also public finances. And in many of the countries where extractive industries, oil, gas, and mining are prominent, unlike in the U.S., those resources are owned by the state. And those are resources that, in extension, are owned by citizens. So creating the environment and the opportunities for citizens to have the power to influence these money flows is why we've called this program Power and Money. We work on not only oil and mining issues, but also the global aid system and reforming that system as well as economic inequality as expressed through the global tax system and the ways that companies, multinational companies, are currently allowed to avoid paying taxes. So all these dimensions fit into our power and money program.
1: Well, maybe returning to extractive industries for a moment. And uh, the theme that we really want to focus on this morning is are we making progress, actually, in some sense, in advancing sort of new normative frameworks for the way we look at extractive industries? And in your particular case, having worked on extractive industries for over 20 years, could you perhaps just reflect a little bit for us on what you see as the most significant changes in policy and practice across the industry over this period? Are we making progress or are we still sort of fighting old battles?
2: Well, I think if you take the period of the last 20 years, starting in, say, 1999, when I really started to engage on these issues, when I was uh, working at Catholic Relief Services as an advisor on extractive industries, primarily in Africa, you're looking at a sector that is completely opaque, that is completely flying under the radar of activists, and a sector that has really no normative framework attached to it, whether it's by home government regulations, whether it's by the international finance industry, the World Bank and others. So there was really it was really a wild West in terms of extractives exploration and development. And I think we've seen a huge amount of normative change in the last 20 years. I think my frustration is that the pace of change has been slow and the resistance from the industry and many parts of the industry has been fierce. But if you look at what we had in say 1999, a country like Angola, in the middle of a civil war, US companies like Exxon and Chevron developing and producing vast sums of oil, revenues going into the Angolan state to fight a war, all of that was completely opaque. We didn't know the contracts, we didn't know the payments, And it was out of that particular situation of injustice that a global movement was born related to piercing the veil of secrecy around extractive industries. If you fast forward to today, those payments to the Angolan government and many of the contracts around the world are now publicly available. So there's a vast amount of information available to citizens to use in accountability efforts with their own governments. If you take the issue of community consent, which you uh, referenced, in the past that was something that was rarely seen as an issue that governments or companies would respect. Now you have the World Bank requiring extractive industry companies to obtain community consent before they get financing from that organization. And many leading mining companies have adopted community consent policies. those are just two examples where we've seen a sea change in how the industry is both regulated and then some of the corporate policies that industry leaders have adopted.
1: So are there so, other high points or achievements that you might want to underline that perhaps our listeners aren't aware of, maybe just listing them briefly, and then maybe we, maybe we can jump into some of the more particular areas?
2: Yeah, I think if you take the World Bank, for example, the World Bank had been, in 1999, one of the leading financiers of extractive industry projects in developing countries. In 1999, the World Bank was considering massive loan to the governments of Chad and Cameroon to fund an oil pipeline. And at that time, the Catholic bishops of Chad and Cameroon made a request to the U.S. Catholic bishops for help in addressing this project. And I was working with them, and we were lobbying the World Bank to delay an approval of this project. This was such a controversial project that the World Bank created an independent review of all of its extractive industry lending after that project. And as a result, we've seen at the World Bank great progress in terms of their policies. So for example, all contracts have to be disclosed, all payments have to be disclosed, community consent is required for indigenous peoples. So the way that a lender like the World Bank uh, has addressed these projects has been a sea change. You also mentioned the the hard law that the US passed in 2010 through the Dodd-Frank Act. And this is something that the oil industry has fought tooth and nail. But as you mentioned, getting payments disclosed to governments, something that was seen as a state secret or a commercial secret is now a common practice and is a global norm. And that is certainly a huge achievement and is an achievement that was made by civil society groups, not only in the U.S., but around the world working together uh, in many countries um, to create these changes. So those are a few of the highlights I've I've mentioned.
1: So maybe let's let's go down to a few areas where I think, you know, there's probably often controversy and maybe go into a little bit more depth. I'd like to begin maybe with just the whole environmental area, because perhaps this is the first one where I think the companies began to sort of show some movement. And environment, as you know, covers a whole range of different issues. And I thought maybe we might just kind of go through a number of those issues uh, one at a time. And maybe just maybe you could comment on how much movement you see on those in that environmental sphere. First of all, maybe just in terms of what you see within the industry generally, in terms of movement on environment, if we go back to the late 90s, did companies even have environmental units that were looking at these kinds of issues uh, in any depth? And actually, were they required to do any kind of public disclosure at that particular point in time as to compare to where we are today?
2: I would think it would depend on the jurisdiction. So in the U.S., we have fairly robust environmental laws requiring a review and disclosure of environmental plans. But in many of the countries where these companies operate, there are weak or, or no regulations. And in many of the countries where these deposits are found, The countries are ill-prepared to deal with the environmental impacts of a new industry. So I would say that in the 1990s, uh, companies basically saw it as a business advantage that there was either no or weak regulation and very weak capacity amongst environmental regulators. So it was a very, I would say it was a very difficult time for communities facing these kinds of environmental impacts uh, at that time.
1: So in some sense, we end up facing what you might call a governance or a justice capacity issue at the, at the national level. And probably that's probably a domain where there's probably considerable work for activists to build appropriate environmental legislation at the national level.
2: Yeah, and you'll see in many countries, and this happens still, that the companies themselves do the environmental impact assessment. They hire out a consulting firm to do an environmental impact assessment and often these assessments of our very poor quality you know they may substitute out the the name of the country for another country but it's really kind of a boilerplate and so countries like uh, Ghana or Peru uh, won't um, be requiring their own you know environmental ministries to do robust environmental assessments so it's a really kind of pro forma exercise and As a result, we see that the environmental issues have been very poorly managed in many of these mining and oil projects. And often you'll do an environmental assessment based on some original plan, but then the the project expands and and there's a whole new set of environmental impacts that weren't planned for.
1: And the project can can be implemented without further mid-course review in effect.
2: Yeah, that's often what happens.
1: So let's turn to the question of climate for a moment. Obviously, many of these companies are extracting, using a lot of energy to extract minerals from wherever they're operating. Is the industry doing anything to address climate change? And perhaps, can we make any distinctions between the energy and mineral companies on the degree to which they're addressing these kinds of issues? Are mining companies, for example, doing any better than oil and gas companies on the, on the climate front?
2: Well, I think the overall picture is very poor, but I think the mining companies some mining companies are doing marginally better when it comes to incorporating climate concerns into their projects. For example, Rio Tinto has been a company that's looking at whether they can develop a zero carbon emission mining sites. Many mining companies are looking at ways to harness solar energy for the energy needs of their mining operations, bearing in mind that In many countries, the mining industry is the largest uh, consumer of electricity in that country. So they have enormous demands on on electricity. And if they can support changes to the energy matrix in that country, that could be very helpful in terms of addressing climate change and reducing emissions. I would say on the oil side, as probably many of your listeners would know, oil companies have often been blockers to... Uh, having a rational discussion, to understanding the facts of uh, climate science, and also our blockers in terms of the solutions that we need to address the climate crisis globally. So that said, I think some more progressive oil companies, Tullo Oil, which is a smaller or mid-sized company uh, in the UK that we've engaged with a lot in places like Ghana and Kenya, they seem more keen on Uh, trying to address these issues as a strategic concern. And I think more companies are now waking up to the fact that the progress in terms of divestment and raising the issue of climate change with investors and getting companies to at least disclose the climate risks that these companies face in terms of their business model, those uh, efforts are making real progress. And so I don't think it's a case of where many companies are out in front but are being pushed to adopt more progressive policies related to climate.
1: Yeah, I think there are actually some cases where in some countries where the the operations are in somewhat remote areas and where there's a lot of sun, companies are actually beginning to use solar energy to sort of supplement their pull on national energy resources, actually, and it could actually be a major driver of a shift to solar energy within those particular countries if they were properly incentivized by investors i think that might be an opportunity to that we could focus on
2: yeah and i think that scenario that you paint is also a very you know bitter irony for a lot of communities who live in the shadow of oil projects or mining projects where they often don't have electricity access themselves but see high tension and voltage power lines going over their villages. So having the experience of visiting Chad, this massive Exxon installation, a power generating plant for their oil project in the pipeline, and none of the communities were hooked up to the grid. So I think they're huge win-win opportunities for these companies if they were able to take advantage of them building on the infrastructure that they need for these operations and building that infrastructure in a climate smart way.
1: I want to turn now to an issue that I don't think we think often about. I mean, oftentimes we think about the companies and pollution, but one of the issues that uh, I think is, is really quite significant is this whole issue of what happens when a mine closes, or I guess what's referred to oftentimes as the closure problem. Extractive industries can often leave an enormous mess behind when they decide to move on and they cease extraction. And, uh, you know, if you fly into Johannesburg, you can see massive slag heaps surrounding the city And in West Virginia, you can see the impacts of mountaintop removal sites in West Virginia that have perhaps been abandoned over time. And companies often avoid this problem by selling off the assets before they actually close to companies that probably are underfinanced and thereby they circumvent the need to invest in a complex multi-year closure process. Is there any progress on that domain? Do you think companies are paying more attention to that these days? Or is that still uh, something that as activists, you and others would, would be giving some attention to in terms of pushing for policy?
2: I still think that's an issue that flies under the radar to be honest i don't know of a lot of activists or civil society organizations who are paying attention to mine closure issues so much attention goes up front to the planning and the development of the project both in terms of the community engagement the environmental impacts as well as the revenue side and how money will be used from the project so there's a lot of excitement up front about these projects but very little attention is being paid to how these projects line down. And as you mentioned, there are huge environmental legacies. And often these companies will put up bonds for closure, but the, the bond amounts are often uh, ridiculously small compared to the costs that are incurred by these mines in terms of, of closure. So I think that is a legacy issue that is still not being dealt with either by the industry, uh, by governments, or activists uh, themselves, too.
1: Another issue along those lines is is the whole issue of dam collapses. Over the last two years, we've actually seen two massive dam collapses along the, the Rio Doce River in Brazil. And both of those were financed by two of the largest companies in the world. And they resulted in a significant loss of life, property, and livelihoods. And I think both of them have been referred to as perhaps the largest environmental disasters in Brazilian history, what's happening in that whole domain? You know, one would think that the volume, the volume of, losses of losses incurred by the companies would precipitate some significant action and change, and and also prompt investors to be thinking a little bit differently about how to look at these companies in light of the kind of losses that were incurred.
2: Yeah, I think the dam collapse in Brazil was a real wake-up call for the companies involved, but also for the industry. But that said, I see this issue like receding into the background again until there's another tragedy. And I think that's symptomatic of the way that uh, companies have been approaching the environmental issues in general. The fact that they're not dealing with these issues until a, a tragedy happens. And it could be Peru the next time it could be Ghana, it could be a developed country that experiences a, a mine collapse. And I think this is a the issue that hasn't been addressed. I've heard some conversations that happened after the Brazil collapse, but I haven't seen any kind of sustained industry-wide effort to deal with that that kind of issue. So I think it's a, it's a looming risk that hasn't been dealt with properly.
1: But you haven't seen any movement in terms of new policies being recommended within the industry, for example, by the International Council on Mining and Minerals, for, for example, which is the body that oftentimes tries to kind of set new normative standards for the industry.
2: I've seen some discussion, but if they have proposed new policies that bind their members, I, I'm not aware of them.
1: Okay. I want to turn now maybe away from environment into uh, the core of the kind of work you're doing, which is about financial transparency, because in many ways, the money that's derived from mining is, for many countries, the most significant uh, revenue generator those countries have. And so in many ways, it can be harnessed to be a major driver of development financing. 20 years ago, the financial deals between oil and mining companies and host governments, I think as you referenced earlier, were shrouded in secrecy. And what progress have we made over the last decade or more to lift the veil? In other words, what have been the sort of the more nuanced details of like what's been made available and what we've had to kind of focus on in order to get the real details kind of out into the public domain?
2: Yeah, I think getting at the core of the relationship between governments and these powerful multinational companies means Unlocking these secret deals. And unless you know the deals that have been struck, you're completely in the dark. So, why are these contracts so important? They contain not only the fiscal terms, so the take, so to speak, between the government and the companies, but they also sometimes even supersede national law. These contracts contain provisions that basically lock in whatever regulations, whatever laws existed at the time. that contract being signed. So you could have a contract that's 20 years old and the company can argue that they only operate under the laws of 20 years ago. And you can imagine a country trying to improve its environmental regulations. Companies can actually go to international arbitration and say this is a violation of their contract because it changes the conditions under which uh, they signed that deal. So the contracts are not only important from fiscal terms, but they're also important from environmental and social terms. They set the, the rules of the road. And back in 1999, very few contracts were actually in the public domain. I think fast forward now, we've seen over 2,000 contracts from around the world now publicly available, and many countries passing new laws mandating that contracts be disclosed. In one country, Ghana and West Africa, where Oxfam has been working since the discovery of oil in 2007, the government has passed a law that requires all contracts to be disclosed. Those contracts are publicly available uh, on a government website, and anybody can download them. And so this is very different than what we would have heard uh, even 10 years ago from companies who said that if we disclose a contract all of our secrets will spill out there, you know, technical secrets there. All of these arguments have been shown to be not true. And these countries as well as some companies are disclosing uh, their agreements. So a couple of years ago, Oxfam published a contract disclosure survey looking at the policies of companies around the world, both Western companies, but companies from China and elsewhere related to the disclosure of contracts. And we've seen good progress. For example, a company like Total, which is a French company, which in the past would have been notorious for striking secret deals, especially in Africa with former French colonies, now has a publicly uh, stated position that they support contract disclosure wherever they operate. They recently signed a deal in Senegal and that uh, contract is now in the public domain. As I mentioned earlier, the World Bank requires contract disclosure And perhaps most notably in terms of progress on this issue, in 2019, the Global Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which is a a voluntary initiative comprising governments, companies, and civil society, now requires the disclosure of all new oil, gas, and mining contracts in order to be a member of that initiative. Um, So we've seen a huge amount of progress. Obviously, there are still places where those deals are secret, um, but in terms of knocking down the arguments against contract disclosure, I think the rhetorical battle has been won, and now it's really a, a mopping up operation to go after some of the countries and companies who are still resistant to disclosure of these deals. But we've been able to take a look at some of these contracts, understand the terms, and then for example work with governments and civil society to make the most out of those deals so it's not just publishing uh, what you pay but making sure that companies are actually paying what is owed there are a number of different ways that companies are able to underpay governments one of them is overstating the costs of the projects that they're doing Overstating those costs reduces the amount of revenue to the government. And more recently, uh, we've been working with governments and companies and civil society groups around the world to make sure that governments are actually doing their job to audit these deals. And often these contracts contain very specific provisions about when governments have the right to audit these companies. In some cases, those audits uncover underpayments of $200, $300, $400 million 300 400000000 dollars And that's real money that governments can use to fight poverty and to deliver social services for their citizens.
1: So Oxfam was part of the founding of the Global Activist Coalition, Publish What You Pay. And a major victory from that work was the Dodd-Frank legislation of 2010, which, if it was actually implemented, particularly here in the United States, would require all oil, gas and mining companies on the U.S. stock exchanges to publish payments to governments around the world. Section 1504 of that legislation and its EU replications kind of further consolidated that work. You were very involved in this one very major hard law initiative that was the creation of Section 1504 to the Wall Street Reform Act. Uh, what inspired this effort and how politically challenging was it to get this piece of legislation through a Congress that was so very sort of pro-business at the time? We are friends and adversaries and in the, in the passage of this and maybe you could tell a little bit of the story of how that legislation was um, wended its way through Congress and actually got to the president's desk for a signature.
2: Sure well it's a it's a long and winding tale and it's an important story in terms of how activism works and how you have to prepare for for opportunity. So if you look at the arc of work on a particular issue, At at the beginning, you need to create an evidence base and show that there is a problem. And so from 1999 on, um, showing that there are huge problems around secrecy, oil, uh, and poverty in many places around the world, building the evidence base that this secrecy over public resources was a problem. Moving fast forward to, say, 2006, when Democrats took over Congress, we started working with past financial services committee barney frank was the chair at that time and there was interest in the committee to helping us solve that problem we had to think about a legislative approach to addressing this and we came upon the idea of making disclosure of payments a requirement for companies who want to list on us stock exchanges in order to raise capital for their projects the us stock exchanges are some of the most important places for companies to raise capital in the world. And we thought if we were able to get this disclosure requirement in place, we would be able to capture over a thousand companies doing business all around the world. So we initially developed this idea, held hearings. We had some allies in industry, for example, Newmont Mining, which is noted for some controversial projects around the world in terms of environmental and, and community rights. But they had a very keen interest in seeing that the money they did pay to governments was actually well used. So we saw that we had, there was a confluence of interest between these companies like Newmont communities and civil society activists to see that the benefits that companies were being required to pay were actually being used well in these local communities. So we had actually uh, Newmont Mining uh, testifying alongside myself in Congress about the the value of this legislation. We did have opposition from uh, the Mining Association in the U.S., from the American Petroleum Institute, but we kept going. And part of the effort was to make sure that this was seen as a bipartisan issue in Congress at the time. We were able to talk about this issue not only in terms of development, in terms of justice, in terms of anti-corruption, but also in terms of national security and seeing that the countries that have the biggest resources are often the most corrupt, uh, but are also uh, important um, sources of instability and conflict that the United States may be threatened by. And so through that angle, we were able to secure the support of Senator Luger from Indiana, who was instrumental in supporting this idea when he was chair of the Senate Foreign Relations, asked his committee staff to travel around the world to do research on this problem and to ultimately endorse the idea of a law that would require payment disclosure. We had two standalone pieces of legislation in Congress. The last was the Energy Security Through Transparency Act. And when it came to the financial crisis and the development of a response by Congress through the Wall Street Reform Act, we saw an opportunity to insert the language of this legislation into that act, which was then ultimately signed by President Obama. That was 2010. We're now 10 years later and the law has still not been implemented. And that is a result of the stiff resistance from the American Petroleum Institute and companies like Chevron and Exxon. And it really shows the degree to which our policymaking in the US, whether it's related to climate change or fiscal issues like this one is captured by industry. And looking back, we spent two years marshaling facts and evidence and the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, tasked with uh, implementing this law in 2012 uh, did issue a strong rule, but the Petroleum Institute and other oil companies went to court uh, and got the law invalidated uh, on a technicality We went back to the SEC, they dragged their feet. Oxfam hired its own lawyers. And I think part of the lesson here, whether it's in the US or in Honduras or in Peru is that communities, the environment and social justice activists need good lawyers. And so we had lawyers who argued our case in front of federal court, and we were able to win a victory and force the SEC to disclose or to promulgate a new rule in 2016. That new rule was very strong, um, required companies to disclose their payments on a project level. So individual projects, communities could track money down to the project level. If companies were paying to, say, a local government, those payments would be disclosed. So we had a strong rule, and we were all in place to have that rule implemented With the election of President Trump and Republican takeover of Congress, we had a bullseye on our back. And as you mentioned earlier, first piece of legislation that President Trump signed was a piece of legislation done under the Congressional Review Act, which allows Congress to invalidate regulations. And this was on the wish list of the oil industry. Keep in mind that Rex Tillerson, the former CEO, of Exxon was now Secretary of State. Um, so the political winds had uh, turned against us and that meant that the rule was invalidated. We're now back the third time with the Securities and Exchange Commission right now soliciting comments on a new proposed rule, which basically does a 180 degree uh, turn on the agency's own 2016 rule, makes the information much more aggregated and much less useful to investors, the communities and others who are fighting corruption. I would say that the good news, as you mentioned, is that even though the U.S. was a leader on this issue and has still not implemented the legislation, we have hard laws in place in the EU, in the UK, in Canada, in Norway. So there are hundreds of reports being published and uh, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of payments that are now disclosed that would have remained secret. I had the recent experience of being in Kenya, in Turkana County, which is one of the poorest and remotest parts of Kenya, meeting with Catholic Diocese and the Peace and Justice Commission of the Turkana Diocese, and they were saying, we know money's coming in to the county government, from this oil project that Tello Oil is operating, we don't know how much the government is getting, and we really want to know. And I was able, with some degree of satisfaction, to tell them: you can go online, you can get a report, and you can find out exactly how much Tello is paying the Turkana County government for the last year. And it's that kind of revolutionary transparency that I think is going to spark a wave of new accountability. Efforts around the world.
1: I think there's some interesting aspects of that story. One of them is that the fact that Trump tried to basically block that legislative implementation has, for the companies themselves, was immaterial because if it's required, that kind of reporting is required in the stock markets of all these other countries, it didn't matter. The companies had already redesigned all their financial public disclosure. To accommodate all the laws in all the other countries, so the, the fact the United States exempted itself has been immaterial. So it's one case where Trump's action has been uh, relatively uh, neutralized by the the larger global response to this uh, this kind of transparency uh, revolution, if I, I can call it that. Another as- interesting aspect of the story was the split between the mining companies and the oil and gas companies, and I think one of the attractive things for the mining companies was the idea that in some sense, they governments that themselves are oftentimes not in favor of transparency often blame the lack of transparency on the companies. And I think the argument that you made that, that in some sense it might be beneficial to the companies that are paying taxes and are paying royalties at a reasonable level and are open to being transparent, it would be in their benefit to basically take the onus off themselves and shine the light back on the fact that the countries and their leadership were actually promoting transparency for the personal gain of individual leaders within those countries. And so in some sense, that gave you another little bit of political advantage in that conversation. And the idea of uh, mining companies and activist NGOs lobbying together on Capitol Hill is something that congressmen don't often see. So I think that was a, a really interesting kind of element of that work. But I think something that a lesson I think maybe that activists should learn for the future.
2: Yeah, I think part of our success was that we were always looking for these kind of strange bedfellow coalitions. So we're not writing off the industry as a whole. We're not anti-mining per se. So we found those kinds of strange bedfellows. And I think importantly, we also found allies in the investor community. So thinking about the multiple uses of the information that we wanted To be disclosed not only information that's useful to citizens but information that's useful to investors so investors face a lot of risks in these countries they face risks of expropriation they face risks of communities halting mine projects which can cost companies 20 million dollars a week or more and so the investors have a strong interest in information and being able to assess risks when they invest in these industries. So we actually got investors worth more than $7 trillion in assets under management writing to the SEC in support of disclosure, and that was very powerful. So not only is it these you know, fuzzy civil society groups, it's hardcore investors that the SEC tends to listen to. We do hope that in this round of rulemaking, we'll also get those investors and those voices should be listened to by the SEC.
1: I want to maybe turn now a little bit to the the benefit sharing that maybe has been derived from uh, the kind of work that you've been doing on the public disclosure of financing. And maybe just refer to maybe one example, and maybe there are others that you could offer. But in Canada, mining companies are experimenting with equity ownership partnerships with First Nations communities. That's one kind of benefit sharing where companies are actually being proactive about it. The distribution in a decentralized way to communities of mining revenue from national governments is another. You maybe just talk a little bit about how one might be seeing more distribution of financial benefit to communities through development financing activities, either through equity ownership or other kinds of models that maybe mark some degree of progress in that domain.
2: Yeah, I think the Canadian model or the example that you mentioned with the First Nations is something that deserves a lot of attention. We should look at how Those management models are actually developed, uh, the governance of those systems. I think there's no silver bullet when it comes to dealing with people, politics, and power. And often the solutions that we are looking at lead to new problems related to capture of, of resources, of corruption. So it's important that we constantly try to look at innovative models, but understand the risks that might come into play in terms of some of those benefit sharing models. We have seen in some of the countries where Oxfam works, new laws being put into place that require governments to share money either directly with communities or with local governments. And in the case of Burkina Faso, this is a country in West Africa that is one of the leading gold producers in Africa, but if you see the state of communities around gold mines, it's really heartbreaking. And there in Burkina Faso, Oxfam, uh, working with local partners, were successful in what we call a 1% campaign, which was to get a new provision in the the mining law of Burkina Faso, that 1% of mining revenues would go directly to host communities for projects they themselves manage. And we're in the process now of, of getting those regulations in place and, and making sure that those monies are used well. The same in, in Kenya. Uh, the petroleum law last year uh, has directed 20% of oil revenues to the local government and 5% to communities directly. It's crucial in the design of these benefit sharing programs that the governance is right. So in Turkana, how will this 5% be used? Who will represent communities? Who's trusted by those communities? Is it a Catholic Bishop? Is it other leaders in the community? People have strong distrust of politicians at all levels. So finding ways that there can be governance systems over these benefit sharing that really provide communities with a say and ensure these monies are well spent is a continuing challenge. But I think people now understand that the old ways of, for example, a central government receiving a ton of money and expecting it to, to trickle down benefit communities really hasn't panned out in, in most countries where we've worked. And so I think the innovations, whether it's in Canada, Burkina Faso, Kenya, are important to look at and understand.
1: Um, maybe just Two quick uh, points maybe to follow on that is Peru has been implementing its decentralization law over the last couple of years and distributing large volumes of money to community governments all over the country and i think to your point about governance one of the challenges is are those community governments really ready to receive the value of money that the central government is now really ready and willing to actually pr- push forward i think it just underlines the the importance of your the message you're conveying about building good governance to oversee the the use and application of those funds the other interesting one is the role Norway plays in um, trying to promote good governance on these issues and perhaps the use of its own a model which it, in which it has set up a national fund to provide healthcare care programming and a variety of other sort of social protections for its population and as a trust fund for, as with using the profits from its own oil industry as well as a second fund that basically is sort of for the more or less the stabilization of the national economy. And that model has been implemented in Botswana, I think to some degree with a success. Maybe that's the gold standard for its application. But um, I think that's another way of looking at how some of the value that we can capture from the industry can be put to good use in terms of social protections and a variety of other socially beneficial programs for people in many of these countries. I'm going to shift now for because of our, our time constraints to maybe human rights issues and maybe just so that we can talk for a few minutes about some of those questions. Indigenous people are on the front lines, oftentimes, of where these projects are being implemented. And historically, they've probably been the most affected by the industry. Do you see any improvements in the way companies are approaching questions of indigenous rights, particularly claims on land, water, and cultural heritage sites?
2: Yeah, I think that the, the issue of the rights of indigenous peoples has been um, something that has been at the center of debates around extractive industries for decades. In fact, the work that Oxfam started on extractive industries really comes out of the work in Bolivia and, and Peru with indigenous communities who were facing extractive projects. So it's been at the forefront of these issues. And indigenous communities, for example, have rights to community consent under international law, including the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples including the International Labor Organization's Convention 169. So they are in a special category and enjoy rights uh, related to community consent that other affected communities don't enjoy. That said, Oxfam's own position is that free prior and informed consent is a right for Indigenous peoples, but is a principle that should be applied to all affected communities. We've seen a good amount of progress in terms of improving the rights of Indigenous peoples, both at the country level, as well as through international laws I mentioned. In some countries, such as Peru, we've seen new consultation laws that have strengthened the rights of Indigenous communities, and we've really worked hard to make sure that those laws are not only on the books, uh, but are real rights for local communities. For example, in Block uh, 192 of Peru, making sure that At the point of renewing a contract for this oil project, that there's real consultation over uh, an agreement that will extend for another 40 years. So we've seen new laws put in place, but we've also seen improved corporate practice. Oxfam has done research on corporate practice of oil and mining companies related to this issue. Both in 2012 and 2015, we published the community consent index, which took a sample of 40 companies around the world and ranked them based upon their policies. We've seen between 2012 and 2015, and even up to now, market improvement, again, particularly with the mining industry, less so the oil industry, around community consent, particularly for indigenous peoples. So now you have companies like BHP Billiton, Glencore, uh, Newmont Mining, Rio Tinto, some of the largest companies in the world, now agree that they will not go into a project without the consent of indigenous communities. And that is an important breakthrough. Now, making sure that these community consent processes are real, that the meaning of each letter in free prior and informed consent, that there's life breathed into that. And so that the information that communities I receive is robust and real, that they receive that prior to the projects going forward, that they're free from coercion, whether by the company, by state actors, by private security to make their own decisions, that in practice, we still have a lot of work to do. And I think one of the important lines of work for organizations like Oxfam, as well as our partners around the world, is to take this policy progress and apply it to specific cases. Uh, So, for example, in Kenya, where the Turkana people are considered indigenous under international law, and the World Bank has financed that project, we did a study looking at the application of free prior informed consent, which is something that Tello, the oil company, agrees with and is required to do because of their financing. We found that there was a good effort made, but the lack of Uh, key information really undermined that consent process. So yes, there is a lot of progress, both in terms of the lenders and their requirements, the companies, and then at the national level in many places, stronger laws, but we still have a ways to go to realize those rights. And I think indigenous leaders and other human rights defenders and environmental leaders are at the front lines of these projects and are often subject to harassment, intimidation, and sometimes assassination uh, for standing up for their communities.
1: I think one of the lessons from the work, the successful work that's been done on free prior informed consent has been the need in some sense to, for groups perhaps, working with indigenous populations to give them or help them acquire the knowledge and evidence to address what you might call the knowledge asymmetry between all the knowledge the companies have and uh, about the territories where the indigenous are residing. And the fact that many times those communities don't have even a fraction of that kind of information. And so there's a whole body, I think, of work that can be done in terms of evening the playing field, if I can put it that way, in terms of the knowledge that both sides have in a negotiation over whether a project should go forward or not. And if it does go forward, under what kinds of conditions and with what terms. Maybe on the good news side, I think some companies, BHP Billiton has recently announced, for example, in in Australia, that it is actually supporting the idea that the rights of the aboriginal peoples be incorporated into the Australian constitution, which is pretty, for Australians, that's a pretty revolutionary bit of news that's happened. And and the company's indicated its support to the aboriginal movement in Australia to, to achieve that. Also, I think, interestingly, in Bolivia, under Evo Morales, whatever you may believe about his politics, as the first indigenous president, he really tried to renegotiate the terms under which And the royalty arrangements under which many companies were operating, and in some ways, left the country financially far better off than it had been for quite some time. And and while there, I think there, one might claim that there are issues with some aspects of his leadership. I think many of the kinds of uh, practices that companies uh, had exercised in the in the country that we're discussing now, I think, were corrected to some degree during his tenure. A lot of what we're talking about here, in terms of normative change, in some ways, is could be categorized under what might be construed as as either soft law, which is kind of voluntary principles implemented by companies themselves in the spirit of being good corporate citizens, or hard law, like 1504, as you referred to, which is actually legislation that requires companies to take certain kinds of actions. What do you see as kind of the, the success of pursuing soft law versus hard law sort of outcomes in terms of achieving change and and driving normative change in in the sector going forward?
2: Well, it's very context-specific in terms of what the opportunities might be. But I think my default answer is that activists should not default to soft law or voluntary initiative approaches when there are real opportunities for putting strong laws on the books. And I think going back to the generic lessons around activism is that you first identify the issue, you propose solutions. The primary industry response is, let's have a voluntary initiative to address this issue. So there's a generic aversion to hard law by industry. And so in some cases, the hill to climb to get uh, stronger laws in place is very high. So you have to take the opportunities that may exist. And in some countries, you get small openings, for example, as I mentioned, the governments may subscribe to this Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which at least provides a roundtable for government, civil society, and companies to talk to each other about some of these issues. It's definitely a soft law approach, but there may be places where those are the only spaces that are politically viable. In other cases, civil society groups and activists may end up wasting their time spinning wheels in conversations with industry that go nowhere. And on the one hand, industry has consciously developed whole departments related to corporate social responsibility and staff whose only job is to talk to the NGOs and activists. Some of those might be sincere, but others might be ways to delay a hard law. So there's careful analysis that has to be done in different contexts. But we've found that Getting hard law is something that is achievable in many contexts. I think sets Oxfam and the partners that we work with in some ways apart from, from other organizations is that we're willing to go after these hard laws and we're willing to go after uh, the kinds of opportunities that have come up, whether it's improve with the consultation law or in Kenya with uh, the petroleum law that will really put things uh, in place. And that's not to say that laws are always the solution. In many countries, we're dealing with situations where the rule of law is rather weak, but without some of these laws on the books, you may have little chance for real reform.
1: Two cases of soft law, which were put in place where they're they're a fora for discussion of these issues. One is the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative which deals with a lot of these transparency issues you talked about earlier. And also the other one is the voluntary principles governing the hiring and reuse of private security companies to guard company property and facilities, which has actually been a source of a lot of conflict in indigenous communities. What could you say about the utility and success of those two initiatives as examples of soft law in implementation?
2: I would say that key to these initiatives is the degree to which there is a balance of power between the actors and how decisions get made, as well as the strength of the verification, as well as the, I would call it sanction, uh, within these initiatives. So for example, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, um, civil society has fought tooth and nail to make that process more robust. So before a country can apply, there's are strong uh, entry requirements related to the ability of civil society to operate, to participate, and so you have to have a strong demonstration of political will by governments even to get your candidacy in place. And if you are in EITI, you will be evaluated on a fairly frequent basis about your performance, and countries have been kicked out of the process for non-compliance. So. Often what we see in these initiatives, whether it's governments or companies, is we see a real free rider problem where companies or governments can say, yes, we've addressed this problem. We're members of XYZ initiative. And I think with the case of the voluntary principles over the last few years, it's really lost steam because of the fact that civil society groups, Oxfam, Human Rights Watch and others were critical of the fact that there there really wasn't a verification mechanism. And there wasn't a really robust compliance process to assess whether companies were actually living up to their agreements in terms of these principles around the use of security forces at their mine sites. And so that's where I see a big difference between these two example initiatives. I know at one point I talked to somebody in an international aid organization. He said he had been able to count up around 50 different initiatives in the extractive industries alone. And so there's really a plethora of these types of initiatives, but I would say that in terms of the balance of effort, at least from the side of Oxfam, we're really focused on taking advantage of those hard law opportunities while engaging in soft law opportunities like EITI, where we think there's going to be some real impact and uh, the ability to extend norms around the world.
1: So Ian, maybe just as a kind of a final reflection, given all your experience as an activist in this sector, what are you seeing that's giving you hope and optimism that change is possible and what concerns you? And maybe a second question is, as you look to the future, are there some emergent issues you feel we will, that will need to be addressed going forward? Uh, what new ethical challenges maybe lie before us in, in the whole EI sector that those of us that are on the call might uh, or should perhaps give attention to?
2: The things that really excite me now are the ability of civil society groups and activists to take advantage of the tidal wave of information on the fiscal side. So the amount of money that's coming in, the information that's being disclosed, the fact that if you're a country uh, developing a new resource, you're doing it in a very changed environment where the expectations are completely, you might say, radically different from 20 years ago where you will have information come out. There won't be secret deals. You will have uh, community engagement. So all of that is a huge amount of progress. And I think what really concerns me is that, as you mentioned, the ability of civil society and activists at the community and national level to really take advantage of this, to have the capacity to understand some of the technical issues, but also, and almost more importantly, to have the space to have these conversations with governments. What we call civic space, the rights of freedom of expression, of association, of assembly, are really under attack in many countries, and particularly around controversial projects, whether it's an extractors project, a land project, these rights are increasingly under attack. So while on the one hand, you have the hope of transparency, on the other hand, you have the promise of accountability often being undermined by these attacks by governments. And the rise of authoritarianism in many different contexts has meant that it makes it all that more difficult to hold governments to account. I think some of the emerging issues that the natural resource governance community, the group of activists around the world working on extractive industries has to confront in a more robust way includes these issues around civic space and human rights, but also the issues around the gendered impacts of these projects. That's not something that we have discussed so far, but the fact is that most of the benefits of these projects accrue to men, whether it's to the men running the governments or to the men working at the the mine sites. And most of the impacts are felt by women in the lack of social services, or in the fact that the water and the streams that women use to collect water are being fouled by these projects. So that is an emerging issue. We've seen EITI, for example, uh, take up gender reporting in a very small way, but we need a much more robust response from, from industry and governments on the gendered impacts of extractive industries. And I, I think the third major issue would be around corruption. And while this has been always a corrupt issue, we're seeing new ways that uh, industry and corrupt actors are are mutating. And so while we have made progress on transparency, it's always a game of catch up. And so looking at issues around so-called beneficial ownership, who actually owns these companies in countries. So for example, politicians may create companies to do business with these global mining and oil giants. How do they use these companies as vehicles to loot governments and to move money offshore? And what kinds of systems are in place in terms of lawyers, accountants, real estate agents, and others in the West that uh, facilitate these channels of corruption? That is a major issue that we're really concerned about and and we need to address. The final issue is, of course, climate change and how we deal with climate in the context of extractive industries reform. We'll see a new wave of extraction based upon the type of renewables that are needed for batteries, for solar, and so that has to be done in a way that doesn't repeat the mistakes of the past in terms of the earlier generation of resource exploitation around gold and copper. So looking at the the resources that will be needed for an energy transition as well as to manage a just transition for the world in terms of decarbonification, making sure that countries who have extractive industries are part of a discussion about a just transition in terms of uh, carbon. That will be a key issue. And we're, we're concerned that, for example, countries like Mozambique who have a generational opportunity to lift themselves out of poverty with uh, a natural gas find are not penalized uh, while a country like the United States is still producing oil and gas and, and right now is the biggest oil and gas producer in the world. So those are some of the issues that I think are at the forefront of our thinking and should be at the forefront of the thinking of other allies working on extractive industries.
1: Thank you so much, Ian, for those very rich and thoughtful reflections. And perhaps more importantly, many thanks to you and your colleagues for decades of work on the front line in pursuit of justice and rights for communities affected uh, by large extractive industries projects. Again, this episode was a recording of my conversation with Ian Gary, Director of Power and Money at Oxford America, as part of a live webinar hosted in partnership with the University of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. Visit OxfamAmerica.org for more information or follow Ian Gary on Twitter, where his handle is Gary. You can find more episodes of the Global Pathways podcast online at pulte.nd.edu backslash Global Pathways Podcast, or stream and subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or Podbeam. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Global Pathways podcast. I'm Ray Offenheiser, and I'll see you next time.
0: Additional support for the Global Pathways podcast with Ray Offenheiser comes from the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs, home to the Pulte Institute and other global institutes, centers, and programs. As Notre Dame's first new college or school in nearly a century... The KeO School places development at the heart of global affairs. Learn more at nd.eduslash global affairs.